Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Think Twice. I'm Ev, your podcast host. I'm a PhD student in neurosciences at Queen's University, and my research focuses on using gene therapy for nervous system disorders. Along with some other amazing grad students, we've put together a podcast series as part of an outreach program with the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University. The podcast is entirely student-run and researched. We'll be tackling a variety of topics related to cutting-edge research or controversies in the field of neuroscience. Our goal is to take you past the headlines and make you think twice about mainstream media topics related to the brain. We'll talk to researchers and do our best to bring more nuance and rigor to neuroscience coverage. We're new to this, so please give us feedback. You can reach us at thinktwicepodcast at outlook.com. In this episode, we're sharing with you the full interview with Dr. Ron Shore on the topic of psychedelics and their application to psychotherapy. Ron Shore is a research scientist with Queen's Health Sciences and postdoctoral fellow in public health sciences at Queen's University. Ron taught drug studies and psychedelics at both Queen's University and University of Ottawa over a 15-year period and spent 23 years in frontline harm reduction, community, and public health. Hi, Ron, and thank you for joining me in this interview. If you're ready, we can hop right into some questions. Sounds good. So we've all seen the psychedelic hype in the media and even in the scientific community over the last decade or so. In particular, these substances have been talked about as a form of treatment for mental health conditions. Why do you think psychedelics research and its application to psychiatry has exploded in recent years? Why does it seem like they're needed now more than ever before? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I think there's a couple reasons why it's exploded. It really has exploded. If you look at the rate of publication or of new trials, it's just, it's so much beyond anything that we could kind of synthesize on what's been published today. So the research in process right now is going to be a whole different generation of psychedelic findings, I think, than the stuff we're looking at that's been published already. There's just so much new stuff. So why is it happening now? I think the the standard answer is, is the crisis in mental health. You know, we have what's seen as a triple crisis in psychiatry, which is a failure of diagnostics, a failure of treatment, and an increasing prevalence in our general population. So I think, you know, you may know people, I get a lot of emails, people are desperate, you know, for help with mental health. There's, you know, our, our mental health support system isn't terribly well-funded, um, and it's not accessible to a lot of people. And I think the other thing for me is, I think what's happened with psychedelics is it's really caught the popular consciousness for a couple of different reasons. One is when you start to look at the science of the brain and of consciousness, it's amazing and it's fascinating and we can leverage all these new brain technologies like the brain imaging. And someone like Carhart Harris has, has you know, really changed the neuroscience landscape by doing that. And then so you have all these new technologies and we have a whole like 30 year history in, in kind of doing this brain imaging for other things, whether it's addiction or depression. So psychedelics, it has a way of just bringing everything together. And you'll probably notice that it brings people from different disciplines. So I think for people in the popular consciousness, it's a fascination with who we are at a time of probably existential crisis after, you know, with a global pandemic. And, and I think climate change has a lot to do with it, to be honest. I think people are realizing, you know, where we've outlived the natural limits of the earth or we've exceeded that and we need to really, really change and reestablish relationship with nature. And, you know, we have to remember psychedelics really come out of entheogens and entheogens are a relationship with plant medicines. And that's been thousands and thousands of years, really back to the time when we coexisted with Neanderthals, you know, humans were using plant medicines for ritualistic purpose. So I think there's an archaic longing that's kind of coming out in response to the climate crisis as well. That's really interesting. I think the triple threat in psychiatry definitely highlights the need for new methods. And as far as I'm aware, there have been many recent advancements in that field. So it seems like a really promising time for mental health care. 
What I'm wondering is where this benefit for mental well-being, if there actually is one, really stems from. What kind of mechanisms are we actually talking about? Psychedelics are described as having both acute or short-term and chronic or long-term effects. Can you describe what these effects are? And, of course, the main interests, which ones are responsible for the therapeutic outcomes? Yeah, this is uh, one of my favorite questions in psychedelics, largely because my thesis is all about persisting effects. I'll just give a little bit of a background. So, you know, we have the acute experience of psychedelics, which is, you know, with a serotonergic psychedelic, it's that you know, receptor agonism and the, and the downstream cascade of, of kind of neurotransmitters that create this kind of entropic feeling of distorted images of time and space and visualizations and, and sensitivity to environment. And that's the acute phase. And, you know, that is definitely part of the therapeutic effect because we find within the clinical trial literature, people who have powerful or meaningful, strong subjective experiences, that kind of forecasts more positive therapeutic outcomes than people who had more muted experiences. And there are a bit of caveats to that, which I'll go back to later. So we know that the, the acute experience is both fascinating, can be terrifying, um, but also is, is connected, we, we think, to therapeutic outcomes. What we found in, in, in our research program, when we looked at 50 years of published animal literature, so behavioral studies using psychedelics, particularly psilocybin, with uh, non-human animals, is that from a, from a purely pharmacokinetic and pharmacological perspective, it appeared there were three stages. All the animals would have acute effects, and that was so dose-dependent, which is another thing we need to remember because psychedelics is just so dose-dependent. And the other is time-dependent. So what we broke it down into, and I, and I advocate a three-phase kind of model, which is the acute effects, that's your first phase. Second phase would be subacute, and then third is persisting effects. So the acute phase of, of psychedelics, say, for example, psilocybin, is thought to be about, you know, the, the acute experience is about four to six hours. You know, most of the clinical trials will hold people for about eight hours before, you know, sending them home just to make sure they're okay. So that's the general time frame for like, you know, biokinesis and kind of, you know, metabolizing the, the major things. But then there are very cu curious things that continue to happen. So I've always thought it was funny, like if you want to do an informed consent for, you know, I'm consenting to psilocybin treatment, like what do you tell them? Because honestly, the literature shows there's persisting effects to at least a month in terms of documentable changes to brain connectivity. So these are physiological adaptations that persist. So after the acute phase, you have a subacute, which is the days following. And usually for someone after psilocybin or ayahuasca or any of these, these bigger serotonergic psychedelics, the second day after is a little bit rough. And, you know, you're not, you're not necessarily getting your greatest outcomes. People who are there for depression may actually be a little bit more depressed the next day. But what we find is the days after that, there's this climbing window and you hit this kind of critical period and it's really even, I think, from a neuroplasticity perspective, we're finding that there's just an enhanced ability to learn in the weeks following psychedelics. And in part, it's because of the, the changes in brain connectivity really move you from a neocortex-centered kind of rumination kind of pattern of connectivity much more into, in, into cortex and kind of midbrain limbic system activation. So people are more sensually, like sensorily connected to their environment. And they're more positively affected in terms of their overall mood is better. And those are the recipes for long-term potentiation. If we can store a memory with a positive mood and we can recreate it or repeat it. And so you have this period of enhanced learning. So my thesis is largely on how that, that, that period after psychedelics is a critical window really for health behavior change. And so for people who want to stop drinking or, or improve their meditation practice, improve their diet, their workout, whatever that is, that month after is really critical. And what seems to be happening is we're able to store 
new kind of patterns of, of what I would call habit, which is thought, feeling, and action all bundled together that are more healthy and that seem to persist. And that literature now we're finding persisting effects in the clinical trials going up to four or five years. So generally there's an acute effect, there's a subacute, and then there's persisting effects with documented changes to, for example, amygdala responsivity or brain connectivity for at least a month. So that persisting effect goes to at least a month. And that's more like, you know, changes in behavior or mood. But in terms of what we can see, and Fred Barrett out of John Hopkins has really done a lot of studies about one month period, and we continue to find neurological adaptations persisting post-psilocybin for up to one month. So it's a, it's a remarkable molecule. You have the initial, you know, kind of uh, serotonergic effects, but then you, know, you have all these downstream effects on, on dopamine and GABA. And really there's this whole connectivity shift that happens in part because they're, they're really good neuro anti-inflammatories. So the brain kind of settles, psilocybin really settles the brain, you know, really kind of occludes or, or, or kind of really attenuates that, that rumination of the prefrontal cortex. And so people simply have an experience and from acute perspective of experiencing the world remar remarkably differently than they normally do which after remember people coming to trials are having difficulties with how they experience the world, whether it's depression or end of life anxiety. So that shifts into a different perspective, both acutely. And then after people find that they're just in a better mood, um, people are more relational. Um, they're more forgiving. They're less responsive. And so in the animal studies, there was a concept called the psychedelic pause, which I think is really helpful. So psychedelics just kind of in introduce a little bit of pause between your past conditioning and, you're, and how you're going to respond going in the future. Because often, you know, we're all creatures of habit, right? We know this from Carl Friston's work in terms of the predictive brain. And psychedelics just adapt that a little bit to make you less dependent on your past conditioning. So that can come in really handy because it reduces fear conditioning. A lot of anxiety is based on kind of past experiences. So it's a remarkable set of kind of this, 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 this kind of swirling around of a bunch of different effects that at least it continued up to at least a month. That's super interesting. And I think the part about rumination is definitely applicable to most mental health conditions. People will focus on the bad and sort of sit in those negative feelings without any obvious way to escape it. Seems like psychedelics might be that much needed escape. We talked a lot about PAP as a modification of standard psychotherapy, but besides addition of the drug itself, can you please describe the series of events that distinguish it from quote-unquote standard therapy? That's a, a really good question. And I think the, the first thing to do is to frame it. There are two really distinct lineages or histories of psychedelic or entheogenic research. And one is this more psychiatric model around psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And you're right, it's an adaptation in this, in this kind of model and in this stream of research. It's thought that psychedelics are amplifiers of general therapeutic processes, that they will catalyze and improve general therapies. And MDMA therapy is a really the classic example of that. It's like because so much of the MDMA benefit has to do with the ongoing therapy before, during, and after. So that's a form of what we'd call psycholytic, psycho -assisted, uh, psychedelic-assisted therapy, where people are talking under psychedelics. So that's one model. So you have the neurological research from like Carhart Harris, understanding the brain science, leading into this notion of how are we going to leverage that within traditional kind of psychotherapies. And even then, what you're finding with psychedelic psychotherapies is they're really being influenced by more modern influences on psychotherapy, like mindfulness and Buddhism, uh, somatic experiencing. So it's a really interesting time just in terms of psychotherapy to look at the debates on models of care. Roz Watts probably has the most prominent model, which is really focused on accepting, connecting, and embodying. It's an ACE model. So that's kind of one lineage. It's a, you know, we look at the neurological and, and serotonergic or, or, or other neurochemical kind of influences of the, of the psychedelics, put it in a, in a more traditional 
therapeutic kind of framework. And, and generally within psychedelics, given the vulnerability and the susceptibility people have under psychedelics, safety is really critical. So there's normally two therapists in the room. But for most, for the most part, with, say, LSD or psilocybin therapy, there's not a lot of talking that happens during the session. The preparation and integration after the therapy combined with maybe CBT around alcoholism. So you're leveraging all these other, it could be even be manualized therapy. So that's one stream. That's where all the clinical trials are coming through. And really what you're seeing in the modern ketamine clinics and now psilocybin retreats, you're seeing these practices begin to kind of hit the road and, and providers looking for training. There's a number of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy training programs now. So that's the kind of one lineage. The other lineage is looking at these kind of more anthropologically or uh, ethnographically and understanding the importance of, of ritual and of ceremony and of group settings. And so ayahuasca, for example, would always be in a group setting for the most part, unless there's individual healings. And it's, it, it, it's a relationship with a plant and a plant spirit, and it's usually mediated by a shaman or a ceremonialist. And I would say that's a lineage we can't forget either as we look at bringing psychedelics into the mainstream for a number of reasons. One is there is a very widespread and, and not small network of underground ceremonialists who have been doing ayahuasca in Canada for 30 years, if not longer. Um, there's underground psilocybin work, MDMA work, and so often that's in a group ritual setting. And and you look at some of the places like Synthesis in the Netherlands that do psilocybin in group rituals, and they're finding enhanced outcomes based on people's feelings of communitas or belonging. So you have the individual psychotherapy model, then you have more the group ritual model, and I think there's room for both and probably synergies of that could combine the both as well. You know, traditional cultures would really value things like ritual, song, uh, music, uh, prayer, and because of the vault, you know, the susceptibility you have under psychedelics, you're so sensitive um, that historically those ceremonies were terrific times for cultural learning for people, young people, in particular teenagers used to often do ayahuasca in traditional settings to kind of learn the cultural values of their elders and connect with the, the spirit world. That's odd to a Western mindset, but more and more people are understanding there's more to our experiences than just the physical body and this kind of reductivist model we've had about the body as a machine. I think part of the reason psychedelics are popular is it explodes that model and looks more at the importance of, of, of consciousness, our integration with the environment. Even serotonin alone is, is so environmentally tethered. You know, we're really creatures deeply entangled in our environments and, and the Western model doesn't often recognize that. Yeah, it's a great answer, and it seems like a lot of thought is going into the specific model of therapy since context is pretty important to the efficiency. So that brings us to the next question. Do we know if context can be responsible for a bad trip? You know, like if you get the context wrong. A hundred percent. So there have been a number of studies on negative and challenging experiences. And, and the first thing before we enter into the bad trip conversation, there's a certain belief within the psychedelics community, within some people anyways, and it's not a small belief current, is that there's no such thing as a bad trip. People say, oh, you know, it always gives you what you need. The medicine is always there. It's healing no matter what. You know, we can't make a big deal. It's bad trip. It's a media invented phenomena coming out of, you know, the war on drugs. And I just really have to say that's absolutely not true. There are people who have absolutely harrowing experiences under psychedelics that create psychological distress for them after. And I think that's important. We, you know, the, from a, I think if people are going to do well with psychedelics, we need to be really clear about the possible risks and the safety so that people are informed and prepared going in. And so therapists know as well. So the biggest issue in negative and challenging experiences when we look at the literature, and that's either from the clinical trials or the healthy kind of subject, healthy volunteer trials or naturalistic reports, a lot of it is lack of proper setting. It's, you know, a couple of things, lack of proper preparation, lack of proper setting. 
and then dose and combining it with other drugs. So I'd say the biggest risk factors are, are doing it at a time in your life that it doesn't make sense. So, you know, your, your partner just, just dumped you the day before and you're all over, you got some really bad news, you got laid off from your job. The next day is probably not the time to do psilocybin. It's just when there's emotional lability and, and volatility, people tend to not do as well. And that is for understandable reasons. You're really stepping into this space that is a kind of, can be both challenging and, and terrifically expansive. And you really, you know, I have a friend who says, prepare as if to meet yourself. So when you're going into a psychedelic space, you learn so much about your subconscious and your own patterns and rituals. You want to enter in it very consciously. So preparation is important. And then the second biggest factor would be setting. And so if people do it in an environment, and we found this in, in clinical trials. If you do an LSD study in a hospital under fluorescent lights, people are going to have bad trips. I wonder why. You're restrained, you're in a hospital, you're under fluorescent lights. It's, it, and often the other thing that people would have difficulty with in clinical trials is really invasive measures, people wanting to measure this and interrupting that. So we know all those things can create a negative experience. And then the third thing is dose in combination with other, other drugs. And for example, you know, a lot of people have difficulty with mushrooms would have combined them with other substances either before or after and then taking a dose that's too high. And I know that the McKenna brothers became popular for their heroic dose concept in, in Magic Mushrooms. And you know, really, if you wanna meet the machine elves and, and really go deep, you have to do like five, six grams. And I really have to say again, like it's just, we've exaggerated the importance of those high doses. The clinical trials would generally with psilocybin land around four grams of, of, of a magic mushroom and it's a, you know, they're using synthetic, so there's an equivalent. But what we found is if you went higher than that, people would really struggle. Um, so a really high dose is a risk factor as well. And I'm not saying, you know, on underdose people, I think you'd want to get people to that threshold where there is a, an alteration of consciousness. But for the most part with psilocybin, you can do that anywhere from one to four grams without going five, six grams. So the other thing that really leads to the possibility of bad trips, is just a super high dose. And you'll see people just with erratic behavior, you know, if you're doing it in town or in a, in a big city and you walk outside and you're walking through traffic, you're just, you're not necessarily, uh, you know, as, 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 and making the, the same kind of decisions you would normally. So setting is super important, both in a recreational setting, a recreational kind of use, but also in the clinical trials. I can imagine feeling like a research specimen and being poked and prodded would not be good for a positive psychedelic experience. But context isn't everything, I'm assuming. I imagine there's a variety of factors that determine if it's a so-called good or bad trip. For example, every person is unique and has different past experiences and personalities and all that. How are these inter-individual differences considered in PAP? So that's interesting. Um, so part of my critique of, of our mental health system now is these diagnostic criteria we use and the nosology of the DSM-5 is really problematic. A, there's not a lot of evidence to support these disorders as real things. And we have to remember the American Psychiatric Association came out of the asylum superintendent uh, kind of association in the, in the late uh, 19th century and moved into psychiatry. So there's, you have a troubled history there. And then really the, the DSM-5 diagnostics are, are largely for insurance billing. So how helpful are they to, el to helping us understanding people and their suffering and their mental health needs? And first of all, I, I, don't, I don't like the concept of mental health. It generally isn't mental. These are emotional, they're social. You know, I think we just need to talk about affective health, like how people feel and not necessarily think of it as, a, as always like a mental thing, because I think that's part of the, the stigma that it, it, we kind of get into. But I think the differences, say, with people who all suffer from depression, you know, I could be diagnosed with depression having just lost my, my mother, you know, a month ago, if that was my situation. And is that depression or is it grief? And we know that women have a really different response to antidepressants than men do. So do they have the same depression or is it different? 
And then what is the difference between depression and PT and, and anxiety? At some point, you know, you, you, people can experience both. And, and then you have PTSD, you know, that's, that's a very, and complex PTSD is very common given the rate of sexual childhood abuse in our society. And what's the difference between that and anxiety and that verges into OCD. So you have a continuum of all these disorders and then you have within each of them a great heterogeneity. So when it comes to psychedelics, what are the individual differences we need to be aware of is a couple things, you know, the literature would say, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to misspeak and it's a sensitive issue because it's to gender but women people identify as women are generally more sensitive with psychedelics so that's part of what we've seen people who are older tend to have more stronger more therapeutic experiences than people who are younger so that's again just from the human subject and the clinical trials that's not necessarily naturalistic use so those are some things we know and i would i would think something like psilocybin for me i would say and i'm a bit of an outlier on this but um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend psilocybin for someone with acute PTSD, whereas there is a clinical trial now happening in Canada of psilocybin for PTSD, and not everybody sees this the same way I do, but knowing what I know about people who have PTSD, and I've worked with a lot of military veterans, and, and I spent 25 years in frontline harm reduction and around you know, addiction and homelessness and severe trauma, so I've, I've seen a lot of this, and I think for people with CAP scores of above 50, which means you're, you're, you know, you're symptomatic of PTSD, you really don't want to be getting into... Uh, mushrooms or LSD, where you have this kind of dissolution of reality and loss of ego. It's people need more control, not less in those situations. So I'd say that's another difference we need to be sensitive to. What is someone's trauma history? And if their PTSD is active, uh, you know, you want to be a little bit, I'd say it's relatively contraindicated to do use something like psilocybin, unless you use a low dose. And we find in the animal studies and the humans, low doses are so much different than higher doses. And then you can get into microdosing. So, so much is dose dependent. Microdosing has, is supposed to have sub-perceptual effects you don't really notice. Most people microdose notice their effects. So I would say that's just very low dosing. And that's okay. But the weird thing about psychedelics is don't, people don't want to admit it's drug use. You know, I come from, you know, 25 years of studying drug use. So I don't see psychedelics as any different. And I think the importance of the lived experience in people who use psychedelics isn't really a strong current yet, but it's really strong in harm reduction. You know, if you look at the whole concept of nothing about us without us, of addicts wanting to be part of a planning cycle around overdose prevention campaigns or needle exchange, it makes complete sense. So I'm wondering, where's that in psychedelics? And then we need to recognize that if these are drugs, then there's going to be individual sensitivities as well to the drugs. But it's not like anyone's got a scorecard yet to say, if these are your personal criteria, here's how we're going to change your dosing. Because as much as there's interest in personalized medicine, we're not quite there yet with psychedelics. But in general, they also, one of the neat things about psychedelics, for most people, and at most times, it just has a general salutary effect. It just makes your body work better, makes you feel better. It's a generalized boost to the organism, particularly how it relates to your environment. So in all in all, mushrooms, it's not like almost like ashwagandha or traditional kind of Ayurvedic medicines that would just boost your natural functioning and your vitality. It's kind of what psychedelics do. Now, we look at them as very specific treatments for disorders, but they're just a general salutary benefit to people. And you just have to be careful if you're getting into high doses, given the, the, the risk of a psychological challenge, like whether or not it's the right time and right setting. But at low doses, it's hard to find any, any harms other than, you know, if people are microdosing and they're trying to go to work, they might feel a little anxious, but maybe just adjust your dose or, or don't do that at work. But for the most part, people just feel better after. Right. And I think those individual differences are being considered more and more in mental health care. No human is the same. So I'm glad this is actually considered in psychedelics, too. Another aspect that I'm assuming differs a lot between people is mysticality or how spiritual they are. 
you already touched on this a bit, but can you describe the role of mysticality or spirituality in a typical PAP session? Yeah, this is a really neat part. And, and when I started my dissertation work, I guess more than five years ago now, I really was interested in the spiritual aspects of, of particularly psilocybin. And I thought I would go down the road of, of looking at the mysticism. And my early work was on that. And what I found was, and, and I was teaching at university at that time. I've taught at Queens for 16 years, introduction to the study of drug and alcohol pro problems. So I've taught about psychedelics now that entire time. Uh, and I taught at University of Ottawa for two years as well. And, and I thought that I would be, early on in my research, I thought mysticality would be what I'd hang my hat on. And what I found was as I was teaching about psychedelics, when I started to talk about mysticism or when I would work with health professionals and try to talk to them about potential therapeutic use of psychedelics, their eyes would glaze over when I talk about mysticism. And this was five years ago. We've come a long way. There's much more interest now. But what I really found people responded to was the neuroscience. So I kind of went much more deeper into the neuroscience literature than into the mysticism literature, in part because of the nature of my of my research program. And I was fascinated by what's happening at a neuroscientific level. And I found that's a really compelling, clear case you can make to people. Most people can kind of get it when you simplify it. And it speaks really well to clinicians who we want to change and to governments who we want to change the regulatory perspective. So when you talk about mysticism, because we don't have a strong cultural history, people didn't quite understand what it was or what it meant. Or some people would just think it was, you know, hokey and that. But there's much more interest in it now. And I'm not saying it's not part of the effect. There are various camps in terms of what we would say the, the mechanism of action is for psychedelics. And for some people, they would say it's spirituality. So Adele LaFrance is a Canadian researcher who's done ayahuasca research around eating disorders. And she says very clearly the mechanism of action is enhanced spirituality. And that creates a sense of cognitive flexibility, increased self-esteem, greater self-regulation. So that's one argument. And then if you look at the Johns Hopkins literature and Roland Griffiths and, and Bill Richards and the people who've done those trials there, they really make a clear association between mystical experiences and positive therapeutic outcomes. So mysticism is this sense of unity, of dissolution, of subject-object dichotomy. You feel one with the universe. You feel like there's something sacred or elevated or meaningful or Gnostic about your experience. You could have a sense of a higher vision, higher purpose of your life or of, of life in general. You might meet entities or spirits that are benevolent or possibly not who you're going to interact with and perhaps learn from. And traditionally, plant medicines were seen as visionary plants. This is the purpose of doing these plants is you went to meet the spirits so you could learn something from a non-ordinary reality, which would shed light on what's going on in everyday reality. So. Indigenous communities believe, you know, for the most part historically, that the source of our bodily suffering was, was the spirit world. And it, what we needed to do was connect better there for better health. And I would say in today's society, I think for most people, if we can connect more spiritually, we do do better. So there's a clear, even empirical connection there. So the spirituality side, mysticism is, is a super important part of psychedelics. There are other people who would argue it's the neuroplasticity that creates the cognitive flexibility. You can have more of a neuroscientific mechanism of action, but the mysticism is one of the leading kind of arguments about why these things create therapeutic outcomes. I really like that you're discussing this because obviously psychedelics puts us in a space of high psychological vulnerability. I'm assuming there are unique dangers here. How are these specific risks being handled? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. The leading adverse experiences to serotonergic psychedelics like magic mushrooms are things like nausea, uh, increasing heart rate and increased respiration rate. And because people are, are more interoceptive, they're more aware of what's going on in their body that can make them anxious. They start to feel things or feel their pulse or notice their breathing and they're not used to that. So the biggest concern in terms of um, adverse experiences is what we call transient anxiety and distress. Because as psilocybin starts to take pharmacological effect and you get that come up, 
people can get worried and their perceptions start to fall away and they start to lose track of who they are, what they're supposed to do. And that can lead to a little sense of anxiety or panic. So that's the biggest concern. Nausea is also nausea and vomiting are not uncommon. Everyone knows about purging in ayahuasca, but in mushrooms as well, you can have experiences of a lot of nausea and purging. And I think that's important. Even Maria Sabina, who was like the, the Mexican curandera, Mazatec curandera, who really brought magic mushrooms to the world, would commonly use tobacco to make people vomit and nauseous along with mushrooms. So there's always been a purging aspect of these traditional medicines. And you're going to get that. But the bigger safety risk that people have become more aware of in the last couple of years is the risk of therapist abuse. And, and that is because people are so susceptible and so vulnerable in the psychedelic state. They're not really able to consent in any way. Now, MDMA is a much different experience than psilocybin. MDMA, if people have experienced it, is a lot of love and there's a lot of touchiness to it. So if you have therapists then who think it's okay to hold people, and there are, all, there are schools of psychotherapy that think you should hold someone as if they're a child because they've lost that nurturing early on and you're replacing it as a therapist, I, I take great affront to that. I think it's there's some of the schools of psychotherapy have very problematic approaches and some of those problematic approaches have been ingrained in psychedelic assisted therapy since it started in the 60s and 70s. So some of the bigger names in the field, uh, including MAPS, you know, which is the biggest you know, psychedelic kind of organization in the world, uh, a couple of their therapists in Canada have been found to be abusive towards their clients, including, including sexual abuse. There were three MAPS trials in Canada that were recently shut down for lack of safety concern and lack of proper oversight. And that can include things like regulation. So this is quite shocking, you know, from someone who's managed a lot of health clinics for 20 years, how, how that happens, and particularly working with vulnerable people at street health. It's not hard to protect people, but you have to make it a priority. And I find that sometimes the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy kind of movement hasn't necessarily reckoned well enough with losing some of our, our idols, for example. There's another, one of the leading mushroom writers, uh, Francois Borzat, who was a big inspiration for me early on, and I used to get individual mentoring from her, and it came out that she was involved in a sexual abuse scandal as well a couple years ago. So it's really, it's unfortunately not uncommon in this space, and there needs to be a clear reckoning. And so how do you, how do you address this? First thing is to recognize psychedelics are not normal therapy. And personally, you know, I meet a lot of therapists who want to do talk therapy while people are under psychedelics. And I have to say, from the literature perspective, it's not a time to be doing therapy under, under psilocybin or LSD or, or, or peyote or anything. If, if under MDMA, there's some talk therapy that can kind of make sense, but that's a whole different thing. So I think we have to be careful about what we do in that really sensitive space when people are under acute effect because they can't consent. So any consent needs to be done before and boundaries of touch really need to be established. A lot of therapists will argue there's nothing wrong with hand-holding or reassurance. And I agree, there is a place for that, but you need to be really clear ahead of time. Um, but there's no, I don't think it ever makes sense to be like holding someone like a child, which you'll see in some of the psychedelic, like Dost, the movie Dost, you'll see, a, they use Ibogaine and you see them doing it with a client. I think that's really problematic. So I, I would say that there are some issues to be continue to be addressed in the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy movement, largely around patient safety. And, you know, two people in a room at a minimum at all times, you know, um, just making sure that, you know, people are well informed and, and, and realizing their vulnerability going in. I really like group, group ritual. I think group ritual can really reduce the possibilities of abuse. It doesn't mean abuse hasn't happened in ayahuasca settings because it really has because you have power dynamics with shamanism. So that's a whole other thing. So it's, it's, the, it's the dirty little secret of psychedelics. We do have an abuse problem, but I'd say that's widespread in society and this is an opportunity for us to fix it and overcome it. And it, protecting people who are vulnerable is just the number one thing. And, and knowing why we're in it, you know, as a therapist, you're not in it 
it's not about you. We're not in it to heal people. You know, we're there just trying to offer people, you know, an opportunity for them to heal themselves. Because part of what psychedelics do is they just kind of, you, you realize so much about your inner world and you realize that a lot of your, your, your well-being and, and your sense of kind of help can come from internal sources. So I don't think we want to, you know, kind of discourage that for people. So it seems like psychedelics have very unique risks and they're unique substances in general. They literally alter your consciousness, which is fascinating. But I'm wondering now, why do you think psychedelics are discussed as having a so-called wide transdiagnostic potential? What is it about psychedelics that makes them applicable to so many different disorders? Again, that's one of the million dollar questions. And that's, you know, when I started my research, that was my core question because, you know, it, there were there were prospective claims being made um, that psilocybin could be beneficial for substance use disorder, for depression, for existential anxiety or distress at end of life, for OCD. So looking at that literature, I was like, this is this is so interesting because either these molecules are, are very, very different than in the way we've thought about pharmacology in the last 20, 30 years, which is very targeted. You know, and you know, antidepressants will target a particular kind of part of the serotonin system, and you're trying to just, you know, if the, if the argument is serotonin deficiency or dysregulation causes depression, then you're coming in with treatments that are very targeted serotonin, and I think psychedelics are so different, and and much like you know, from a regulatory perspective, a drug is usually authorized for use with a particular disorder, but with psychedelics, you have so many disorders that they had you know, possible therapeutic efficacy for and the more literature comes out the more that's really established as being true so it's 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 shown efficacy with for probably a range of probably nine ten different disorders now just psilocybin alone now are those disorders somehow connected underneath is there a continuum of human consciousness and these are all just flowering expressions of of common patterns and the diagnostics aren't really a separate that's one possibility or the other is that these psychedelics just have a very general salutary effect which is they benefit the functioning of the organism, its interaction with the environment and its self-regulation on the whole. So no matter what we're dealing with, we're going to be better able to deal with it. I think that's true. And, you know, so the transdiagnostic potential then would really change our notion of mental health too. You know, like how are we understanding these things? If we can look at one intervention having benefit on, on a number of different disorders, what does that tell us about psychiatry today? So, you know, we're still learning these things, but there's no doubt the transdiagnostic efficacy is one of the unique things about psychedelics. So psychedelics seem applicable to so many different disorders, and you've already touched on this a bit, but psychedelics are mainly discussed as a way to help people with mental illnesses. People undergoing PAP often describe profound changes in the way that they see the world, and they say that it's a huge life-changing experience. It makes me wonder why people don't use psychedelics if it's so amazing. I just want to know what your thoughts are about healthy people using it recreationally or as a means of personal growth. Yeah, well, sometimes I come across this term self-betterment, which is so interesting. It's such a funny term, self-betterment. But at the same time, I think one of the things we need to do is be less insistent on these false divisions between people or between experiences, which means the division between healthy and unhealthy. Like, I'm not sure where that starts. When do people start to become unhealthy? Like, I know there are things that I do in my daily life that are probably unhealthy, but I do them overall, I'm healthy. So I think we're always on this continuum of ill health or health. And it's not to say that ill health isn't real and suffering isn't real. I'm not saying that. But I think that there's a clear applicability in terms of just overall health and wellness for a couple different reasons. One is, you know, my argument is that psilocybin is, is of general salutary effect. And part of the reason I came to this was the animal studies. We reviewed 50 years of animal research on psilocybin. And I think I learned more about psilocybin in that context than all the clinical trial literature. 
Because when we're talking about animals, you can't apply concepts like depression or anxiety or PTSD. It just doesn't exist. And you don't really know what's going on for them other than their behaviors. But what we noticed was some very interesting things when you started to not look at, say, depression or anxiety, but you looked at, say, self-regulatory systems of, of an organism or positive and negative valence or social processes or cognition. All, let's just get back to basic functions of the organism, back to biology. What are we? What we exist in the world? What is the human? How do we work? And, and what we find is that psilocybin just sharpens all that. You're less, because you're less conditioned by your past experiences, you're more present. Because you're less, um, it, it really relaxes fear conditioning and it, it attenuates past conditioning around chronic stress. So it rescues deficits of chronic stress. We, get, we all have this big allostatic load where it's under so much stress. Psilocybin just brings a little bit of sparkle and your posture back in a way and your brightness back and you're able to cope better, you're less fearful, you're a little less dictated by past habits, so you have a little more freedom, and your mood is a little better. So who couldn't benefit from all those? And the microdosing literature is really clear that it helps with creativity, it helps with you know improving mental health, focus, attention, and uh, there's caveats to all that. And microdosing is a little more complicated than we like to make it, but I think it's interesting and useful too. But I think there's clear applicability for you know not, not just the worried well, but any of us, um, but it really depends on people and their sense of needs and what they want. I mean, psychedelics aren't for everybody, but I don't think another, okay, just another take on this though, however, is like when you look at the, the, the traditional anthropological literature or the traditions of plant medicine, they would be done in group rituals in settings with anyone in the community as a form of cultural belonging and cultural connection, but they would also be used for healing. So it's almost like there's two applications, even Aztec communities used a lot of mushrooms and social celebrations. And, and so there's a clear applicability of psychedelics just in terms of sociability, right? And that low doses kind of make people move a little more, make people a little more interactive. And so mushrooms at a lower dose can do that at a higher dose here in this kind of big internal journey. And that was generally reserved when people wanted healing. So don't go into that big space unless you want to learn something about yourself that's going to heal you. So that's my only proviso is, you know, I think it's good to just help and help the organism be more healthy and more functional and responsive. And I really think that so much of it has to do with the reset of, of your neurological connectivity. You really, you know, I thought of calling my model the limbic learning model because psilocybin just improves your limbic learning. You're more midbrain, you're more cortex you're less responsive in the amygdala, you're less prefrontal cortex rumination, you're more integrated with your sensory environment. And that's why people report feeling more, rela more relational to nature, that more connected to each other. Relationships matter. And in today's world, those, sounds, those sound like things we could all benefit from. That's super interesting. And I really agree with what you said about mental health being, well, health in general, really being a continuum and not just black or white. If these psychedelics become legal, I imagine there needs to be some regulation surrounding them to help protect people undergoing this experience. Are there any governing bodies regulating psychedelic guides, or is this something that needs to be put in place? No. People would be bound by their own colleges. So psychologists by their college, psychiatrists by their colleges, physicians by theirs, nurse practitioners, but nothing specific to psychedelic uh, practitioners. This is an interesting area of debate. And I actually teach at the Nikea Foundation, has a Foundations of Psychedelic Assisted Psychotherapy program. So I taught their psilocybin module this fall uh, for them. And that was like 17 therapists all. And they were really clear, we're not training people to, and we're not certifying them in psychedelic assisted therapy. We're teaching them the foundations and what they do is kind of up to them. So I think that's the best way to do it. 
there are a lot of people certifying people. I know who people have been certified in psychedelic assisted therapy by doing an online course that or didn't even do all of and they got certified. So you have to be careful with these claims of certification. There's no overall overarching regulatory body. And this is going to be one of the regulatory challenges that comes up because, uh, you know, and it's funny because as much as we love the neuroscience and the psychology and the mysticism of psychedelics, the people who rule the psychedelic space now are the policy nerds. People who are trying to figure out from a regulatory perspective, where do we put this? What do we do with psychedelics? And those people who are like policy analysts or really good at regulatory stuff, which is kind of nerdy, is really an, an important time right now in psychedelics because it's going to dictate access and it's going to dictate how we shape and understand psychedelics. So, for example, do you just legalize everything? Or do you say it has to be for therapeutic use only? In which case, when can something be prescribed? And what does that practitioner need to have in terms of training in order to access that? So one of the things that might happen, which is slightly controversial, um, and we'll see this in this airs in, in the spring. Maybe this will be all worked out by then. But, you know, MDMA. So MAPS is sponsoring the MDMA trials. The MDMA itself, they published their chemical protocol on how to make MDMA online. MAPS is really clear how you make it. It's based on the work of Alexander and Sasha Shulgun. And they've done a great job in terms of understanding and developing these new molecules. So they're not trying to patent MDMA. But what's happening is the clinical trials investigating the MAPS protocol on how to do therapy with people under MDMA as the clinical trial. So if that gets approved, one of the possibilities is a physician can prescribe MDMA for PTSD because it's been approved, but they have to use the MAPS protocol. They have to have MAPS training. That's just a possibility as one regulatory solution to the questions you're asking, how do you, how do you oversee this? And I'm not going to comment on whether that's good or bad. A lot of people will argue there needs to be a new college of psychedelic psychotherapy. Um, I think that's a little bit problematic. I, I know people who've been doing ayahuasca ceremonies for 20, 30 years who aren't registered psychotherapists, but they are... Um, Mestizo trained ayahuascaros. Um, it's a tradition of vegetalismo where people do group ritual and they've done it for 30 years. Where do we put them in terms of colleges? They're doing very good work. It's safe work. They're, they come from bona fide lineages with years and years of training and they've been helping people for a long time, but that's not a school of therapy and that's not really therapy. So psychedelics are a challenging one. I, I don't know where it will go. Part of me is just, just legalize everything and just or decriminalize everything and let people just figure out their own cultural things. I think the thing that I'm interested in, most people use psychedelics on their own or with friends. So we can talk about therapy, we can talk about clinical trials, but you're never gonna stop the teenagers taking magic mushrooms. For me, teenage LSD and mushroom experiences changed my life. They were remarkably positive and insightful. And they set me off in a certain course of Buddhism and philosophy and religion that I really has benefited my life. But we don't really have guidelines for people how to use psychedelics. So what I wanna do is put together low risk psychedelic guidelines. So we have them for cannabis, we have them for alcohol. Here at Queens, we're trying to get an initiative together to do them for psilocybin and just identify all the risks. And from a harm reduction perspective, if you want a good trip, these are the things you need to keep in mind. These are the things maybe you shouldn't do. These are the things you can do. So that's different than the therapy. Do you know what I mean? So there's how you regulate the therapist, which is fair enough, because these are altered states of consciousness. These are vulnerable, non-ordinary states of consciousness. So it's not your average therapy. But then it also goes beyond therapy. So I don't know. It'll be interesting over the next little while. We're trying here at Queen's to develop a bit of a policy model. And we're still early in that and, and, and just some way to kind of move these things forward. Accessibility is a huge issue. Right now, psychedelics are really only for the very well-off in terms of going to these private retreats. Clinical trials aren't a model of access. Clinical trials aren't there to kind of get people uh, on, on this, uh, psychedelics. They're there more to prove the science. So I think that's not necessarily... 
uh, going to help a lot of people, but I think the big issues are going to be social justice and accessibility. We discussed a bit about regulation and access to psychedelic therapies, but I wanted to know what you think is going to look like and how ready do you think we are for this kind of regulation? Like you mentioned, it is important to acknowledge that people have the right to alter their consciousness. And this is a natural thing to do. Obviously, money is bound to come into the equation eventually. So how do you think the financial potential of the psychedelic industry is going to impact access? It's a really good question. So Canada is unique and most people around the world look at Canada as a leader in this area. They think that we're ahead in terms of the psychedelic landscape. It's a bit of a maybe it's true, maybe it's not. It really depends on how the next year or two goes. My sense was I thought psilocybin would have been decriminalized by now when I started my PhD, so it's taking a little longer. I think we're probably still a few years away. There's a couple things affecting the regulatory issues. We cannot forget the drug toxicity crisis. There's a, there's a term called psychedelic exceptionalism, and this is something we want to avoid. Psychedelic exceptionalism would, would be the practice of advocating for the legalization of this one class of molecules, but not others looking at psychedelics as somehow different drugs than all the other drugs people take. And you can argue that they are. Maybe they're a little more healthy, they're a little more salutary. I think that's probably could be true. But you can also argue that opiate use itself, if you have access to clean medical-grade opiate, really, it's, 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 it's not as problematic as within an illicit context. Most of the morbidity and mortality comes with a toxic drug supply. If people had clean supply, and I ran a methadone clinic for, for a long time, People can do quite well on opiates, and there's no physiological reason you can't be on opiates long term, really, if they're, if, they're, if they're medical grade. So you can't just say, you know, we're going to legalize psychedelics and forget everything else because most people are dying from drug toxicity. And it's the number of people now that have died from this is staggering. It's more and more people. When I started doing harm reduction work, I was very much marginal. People would always ask me, how do you work with these people? It seems so strange. But now, so many people, like, I don't know about you guys or your listeners, but most people have families in which we all know someone who's had uh, an addiction, severe addiction issue or a severe mental health issue. Most of us know people who've overdosed. Most of us know people who are at risk of overdosing. So it's so widespread right now. And, you know, there's a group in Canada called Mom Stop the Harm, which are moms just tired of losing their children to bad drug policy. So my argument is we can't just look at psychedelics. I'm a drug researcher. It seems incoherent just to take one class and accept them and keep all the others illegal, largely because also we're trying to treat people who are dependent on these other ones. So I think we need to look at regulatory drug reform in Canada on the whole. We need to, the war on drugs has been a proven failure in terms of the healthcare, the, 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 the loss of life, the prison costs, the, all of those things. And we know that it disproportionately affects people of color and indigenous people. More than 50% of women in prison in Canada right now, federal prison are indigenous, more than 50%. It's, it's, it's just so wrong and it's been going on for so long. And so that's part of all this is tied up. And I know that's not particular to psychedelics, but it has to do with drug reform and how we look at these things because they're all in the Schedule 3 of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act right now. So what are we going to do? I think what you're going to see is medicalization. You're going to see some of them approved for med medical use, already special access. Most people don't understand in Canada right now, you can get legal psilocybin and you can get legal MDMA. It's through your physician or a healthcare provider applying through special access. And we did this for years at Street Health, getting people access to early treatments for opiate dependence or treatment for hep C. We did a lot of special access. It's not hard to do. Um, and so that is happening. So that's a precursor, I think, of what's to come, which is this, this medical access. 
the big concerns there are accessibility for people in remote areas, for people who have complex morbidities, for street-involved people, for really vulnerable people, for the poor, for racialized communities, because, you know, there's been such a... There's, psychedelics really is a... There's been a whitewashing. It's the lack of diversity and representation in the clinical trial development is a real problem. The newer trials are way better. And I was at a psychedelic research conference in Toronto and there was a, a young Sufi master student from University of Ottawa and she talked about Sufism and, and, and the possibility of Syrian rue being useful within, within kind of Muslim or, or uh, Sufi cultures. And I thought that's the, that's the future of psychedelics. Looking at, at cultures that have not been represented, looking at modalities that have not been captured yet in this Western fascination with neuroscience and clinical trials because there's a lot more people, a lot more diversity, and a lot more ways of working with psychedelics than we have. So those are some of the things that we'll have to come to terms with. I, I really don't know what will happen. I think you'll see medicalization with regulation, therapists required to meet certain conditions in order to use a kind of molecule. But at the same time, there's terrific pressure for decriminalization. There are mushroom dispensaries opening up all over Canada. So in very, it very much does mimic the path of cannabis where you had 10 to 12 years, 15 years of developing the awareness of the medical benefits of cannabis, which is what we've been doing with psychedelics, and then it got legalized. So there, that's a complex thing, and I think the way we've done cannabis is, is a little bit flawed in Canada. The quality of the product is bad. Uh, the pa plastic packaging is inexcusable. How that didn't become an organic industry when it started, like just a couple years ago, is beyond my mind. And it's really high-dose THC. And, you know, I've, I've been in cannabis shops, and I hear their staff, like, somebody comes in, I don't know what to get. Well, get, get the high-dose THC. It's more bang for your buck. And people are walking home with 30% THC with no CBD in it. So you're getting a lot of cannabis-induced psychosis. That is a real thing. And I'm, I'm a drug advocate, but I have seen friends have get into trouble with high-dose THC, like and not just one either. So we really need to revision how we're looking at cannabis. I hope psychedelics don't go the same way. The problem, in some way I do, legalization, yes, but I think we can do a better job. The problem is so much right now is industry-driven. And a lot of the early people in cannabis who built the cannabis industry then sold and got out before it collapsed. In, in fact, they probably contributed to the collapse, then got into psychedelics. And then you have big clinics like Field Trip, Ronan Levy came out of the cannabis sector. They're, you know, that's a kind of monetizing clinic looking to use ketamine and then psilocybin. And, you know, it's a, a multinational private clinic. And that, again, came out of a cannabis kind of entrepreneurially. So this is really playing out in live time. I don't know, like so much of it has to do with what people want. You know, at the end of the day, people in my mind should have freedom of consciousness and freedom of spirituality. People should be able to change their consciousness at their own. Taking psychedelics are of no harm to others if done safely, you know, and there's a risk of psychological distress. But that's where we need to get into educating people and harm reduction and, and that kind of thing. So my preference would be to see all of these freely accessible without any, any regulatory or, or criminalized barrier. But then we got to get on with the hard work of building communities of care that can do this work with each other. You know, I look at, you know, my friends who run the really hardcore harm reduction programming here and, you know, 60 staff at these places and they have such hard jobs and like, how do you, how do you help these people get through and the complexity of severe addiction? It's, it's going to take a lot. We're, we have a, re we're really behind the ball in a lot of areas drug, around drug policy. So it's going to take a lot, but I think the first thing is take away the barrier of, of criminalization. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Think Twice. A special thank you to Dr. Ron Shore for his help and for sitting down with me for this special interview. And again, thank you to the outreach program at the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University. See you next time.